After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Indie veterans Dodgy exploded onto the British music scene in 1993 with their self-titled debut album. Yet it was their 1995 follow-up record, Free Piece Sweet, which helped to define the 90s with timeless hits including Good Enough and Staying Out for the Summer. I caught up with the band on the Isle of Wight leg of their nationwide tour to talk music, inspirations and life on the road. Ladies and gentlemen, Matthew Priest of Dodgy. Right, so let's go back to the very beginning. Am I right in thinking that the band grew out of a duo between yourself and Nigel? How did this provide the future band with a grounding which eventually grew into the band we know today? Right, well, um, I was in a band, um, because I was in a place called uh, Bromsgrove, uh, which is in the outskirts of Birmingham, sort of like the suburbs of Birmingham, and uh, there weren't many drummers in that place and so I was in a so I was young and I was like 15 14 and I was one of the only drummers in that town that could into this kind of music that they're into which is at that time was U2 and the cult and Sex Pistols and stuff and um so I got into playing in bands very very early and then um and I was always playing with guys that were older than me and then um the band I was in developed and the singer left and we and then we advertised for a new singer and I put the advert into the paper saying uh, the best band in the world requires the best singer in the world and Nigel responded and uh, and he turned up and he looked uh, at the time I don't know if you know a singer called Billy Idol he looked a bit like Billy Idol he had blonde well he had white hair leather he looked ace and Nigel turned up and um, and I was like dead nervous because I was like sixteen, but um, we bonded straight away because we both loved the band called The There. I don't know if you know a band called The There. Um, in the eight in the eighties, they 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 had this amazing album called Infected, and they were kind of indie, kind of cool band. Not everyone knew them, and they, and me and him, but and he said, he went, you know The There, and I went, you know The There. Wow, so we bonded over that band, and um, and then me and him kind of bonded more and more, and then the guys who were in our band, we sort of won't care about that. And me and Nigel had this bond, and then uh, Nigel, Nigel was he had a really good job at Austin Rover working in cars um, in Birmingham. Everyone worked in Austin Rover, it was a massive factory. It was like. At its peak, there were fifty thousand people working at Austin Rover, but but when but around my time it was about ten thousand people. Nigel worked at Austin Rover, and he had a a, a fiance, he had a house, he had a car, and then he called me up one day, and this was before mobile phones or the internet, where they call you up on the house phone, and I, I picked up the house phone, and and I was seventeen, and I was kind of doing my um, A levels. And Nigel went, we're going down to London. And I'm like, 
Um, but you've got a girlfriend and you've got a... I mean, no. If we're going to do this, we're going to make it... And I was like, shit. Oh, okay. Um, put down the phone and then I had to convince my mum that we had to go down to London. And she wasn't happy about it. It took two, three months to convince my mum because she was like, but you could do this and you could do that. And I was like, yeah, but I really want to go down to... And I really want to make it. And... Um, and she, I wore her down, and then me and Nigel moved down to London, and we essentially started the whole thing that eventually ended up as dodgy. So that was the thing. But but because we both, because Nigel made such a sacrifice, and I made a sacrifice, it was like, this isn't just a little thing, a little band that we're just going to try out. It was like, we are going to make this happen, you know what I mean? And we did, you know? Good story, happy story. And throughout history, musicians and artists have taken inspiration to do what they do from the sort of socio-economics of their childhood. Wow. What was it about growing up in the 80s which made you feel so empowered to make music? <laughs> mate! <laughs> mate! What a question! Um, read that again to me, because that's an amazing question. Amazing question. Go on. Uh, from the socio-economics of your childhood, what was it? about growing up in the 80s, which made you feel so empowered to make music? Well, um, in the 80s, when I was 13, I was 13 in 1983, and it was like, that's the time when I was really started getting to music, 12, 11, and I was lucky because my dad and my brother, older brother, were really into music as well. But if you think about it, it was only... 16 years since 1969, 15 years since 1969. And it wasn't that long ago. And the 80s was so quick. Everything happened really quick. We had punk in the 70s really quickly. And then we had post-punk, Irving Costello and Blondie and the police. And then then with the 80s and all this new technology was coming in and all these pop, synth pop bands like Human League and Soft Cell, who I loved... But but the, but but back then, music was something. Pop stars were something to aspire to. They were they were they were amazing. You know you want you wanted to be in a in a. But nowadays you want to go and work in IT or you want to go and be you want to be a gamer or something. But but back then, um, you had bands like the Clash and the Jam. The Jam was so important to so many kids from working class middle class backgrounds the jam were really important the class were really important um you know it was like you 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 want to you just want to you want to do it it was where you do and also because it's very very hard to for a lot of kids to understand now um the, the, there's an author I can't remember his name and he said what would it be like if the internet was turned off right now. If the internet was turned off, what would it be like right now? And he said, 1995. Because that's what... Because pre-1995, we had mobile phones that were crap. We didn't have the internet. And music was really important to people. It was really important. If you got If you got some pocket money... You'd go down the record shop. On every single high street, there'd be an Air Price or there'd be a Virgin 
or there'd be a tower record, there'd be a record shop. And you would go and buy a record. That's what you do with your pocket money. Nowadays, you don't do that. Kids don't do that. But music meant a lot. It meant a lot to kids back then. And um, and to me, the whole idea, the Beatles just, just meaning something, you know, doing something that's, wow, we can do that, you know. I don't think I answered, your question was phenomenal, and I don't think I answered it as well as your question was, but I think I did quite well. And that was obviously 80s, very important to you, but the 90s really was when Dodgy took off, and at that time it felt music had just sort of rediscovered the concept of freedom, like what the 60s had reveled in. How would you sum up the 90s as a decade? Well... It's very interesting. There was a lot of money around in the 90s. There was a lot of positivity around. Um, and because the record companies had a lot of money because they had this brilliant period in the 80s where um, everyone had a vinyl album of, say, Dire Straits or David Bowie, and then they'd go out and buy the CD of that album so they get double the amount so there's loads of money slushing around in the music industry and um, so that's one factor one lots of money in the music industry and they were prepared to spend it second factor two is that Radio 1 um, <clears throat> they had DJs like uh, you might not know this but they had DJs like Simon Bates, Dave Lee Travis, and it was like old. And the whole remit of Radio 1, the whole thing is, because it's a public broadcasting station, is that, is that they have to broadcast, Radio 1 has to broadcast to 16 to 25-year-olds. Yet all the DJs were like over 50, and they were boring, and they were crap, and so they got this new head of Radio 1 in, called Matthew Bannister, who completely sacked everyone, sacked all these people, and got people like Chris Evans, Zoe Ball, and, and changed it, but with these new DJs, he wanted a sound of Radio 1, the new sound, to kind of make it, you know, so we've got the new DJs, what's the sound of Radio 1, and Luckily for him, Britpop and Oasis and Blur and Charlatans and Dodgy and all these bands were coming through. And so all these bands would get on the playlist. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand is that these bands were everywhere. You'd hear them. You'd hear Dodgy. You'd hear Oasis. You'd hear Blur on the radio. And it was like, wow. And and it was a real wow. And, and, and for a while, guitar bands or bands that had something to say, cool bands, bands with good lyrics, was pop music. It was pop music. It wasn't crap that we're getting at the moment. It was pop. We had pulp and Dutchy and Supergrass and Blur and Away in the top ten. And it was like, that was pop music. And it was like, amazing. And I think the two factors, because there was a lot of money in the music industry and Radio 1 
wanted to champion a new sound. But also, there were a lot of great bands around. Great bands. Really good bands around. So, that combination of all those things just resulted in this thing in the mid-90s of this fantastic sound, you know. And your self-titled debut album was released in 93 and was produced by um, the Lightning Seeds' Ian Brody. How integral do you think he was to that record's success? Um, well, it wasn't really a success, that album. It wasn't really a success. We loved the sound of the Lightning Seeds because they had a song called Life of Riley and Sense and, you know, that, yeah, really good. And also he produced Echo and the Boiling Men, he produced the uh, Icicle Works, and he was a real sound. And he was kind of suggested to us by the record company as a safe pair of hands. And you know what, as a band, we we look back upon that album and we're not happy with it because it was, because he's a, he's a, he overproduced it. There was too much. He didn't allow us to be ourselves. Um, but the second album, where we had Hugh Jones, that's where he allowed us to be ourselves, you know. Uh, but Ian Brody, he's an amazing producer and he's an amazing songwriter. Um, but um, and I, I went on to play in the Lightning Seeds in the, for for about two or three years, and I played in that band as well. And the first ever gig, listen to this, the first ever gig I did for the Lightning Seeds. Um, was do you remember Hillsborough where this horrible thing 96 people died um there was a gig at at Anfield in Liverpool um where there was the Man Street Peaches Beautiful South Lightning Seeds all played Dodgy played and that was my first ever gig with the Lightning Seeds and because um Man Street Peaches and Beautiful South said this is too much of an important gig we won't headline. The Lightning Seeds have to headline because A, they're from Liverpool, B, they have the footy song. It's coming home, it's coming. So the Lightning Seeds headline that gig and that was my first gig with the Lightning Seeds. And I was shitting myself. Shitting myself. And it was like in front of 55,000 Scousers. But you know what was lovely? Is that um, Manic Street Preachers, Nicky and James... Who I don't, who I've, who I met along the way, and always say hello and meet them, and um, they're very, they're big socialists, big people. They're believing people, and um, they said, um, and I told them, I said, this is my first gig, and I'm sh- shaking myself, and they went, oh really, oh, because a Welsh, bad Welsh accent, bad Welsh accent, and they said, and they went, oh okay, and they stood at the side of the stage, and I played the drums. And every time I looked across, they were like that. And they supported me, sort of, in spirit. And I looked across. Every time I looked across, they were there going, come on, man. And I'll never forget that, that the two guys in the Manic Street Preachers stood at the side of the stage and were like, you can do it, man. And I was like, wow. Because it was such an emotional day. You know, it's all about people that died, but it was all about people coming together. You know what's wonderful? Is that they finally got justice. Finally got justice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you mentioned your follow-up album there, Free Piece Suite. Um, that helped to define a 90s generation. Tell us a little bit about the development process that went into creating such an iconic album. 
especially as like you say after the first album you weren't overly happy yeah 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 well um the second album that we did was an album called homegrown where it was a lot easier to do and we'd had all the songs written the third album three piece sweet by that point nigel lasinger had a kid so we had to do the album quite close to where he lived. So we did an album uh, in a place called, um, um, what was it called? It was called, um, there's a studio and it's where they did Sandinista by The Clash and they did Bohemian Rhapsody um, by the by Queen and it was a, a classic studio that we did. And uh, it was one of the things, it, it was, we had quite a few songs written but Nigel was, because Nigel's kind of the, the main creative source in the band. He was on fire. He was on fire. He had loads of things going. And we had this guy, Hugh Jones, who we'd worked with on Homegrown. He knew the band. We knew him. And we were on fire. And I remember things where we'd be in the studio and Nigel was like, doing a song that we called the Elton John song because like, he it was a bit like Elton John and um, and Hugh Jones would be like right Math there's the lyric sheet right what the lyrics do we have all the lyrics write the lyrics Math Nigel and it was all fast working and it was all we were on fire he was on fire we had lots of songs we had good enough in a room we we the record company were really behind us. The, the the head of the record company was like, he said, "Right, you are a priority band. We're gonna make a success out of you." And we're like, "Wow, great!" So it was, you know. And he heard. I remember. <laughs> I remember. He heard good enough, uh, which is a big hit, and uh, he heard that for the first time, and he went, "Ah, this is." Great. And he's American, and he went, "Ah, this is great," because. The, the video was got to be in a hot country. And we're like, yeah, yeah. Got to be like somewhere like India or Jamaica. And we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because they wanted to spend money. Again, what I said earlier, they had money and they wanted to spend. So we were on fire. We are on fire. We were, everything was good. So why do you think Good Enough is so fondly re- remembered and why it was such a huge hit? Um... Because it repeats the chorus. Because <laughs> it repeats it. Good enough for you. Good enough. <laughs> Good. It repeats it. It's a classic pop song. It repeats it. Catchy. And and also it's um, happy. Yeah, it's happy. And um, and it's simple. It's simple. Um, and it has a great vibe to it. You know. Um and people just love it because it's it repeats and it's simple and people love it and it's it makes people feel good and we never would have guessed how big that song would have been because it's massive that song it's like oh it's a great story sorry i'm gonna carry on here but but there's a great story where i um went to hire a car from um in King's Cross, um where I lived in London. And I walked into the car hire place and they had a garage at the back and they were playing Capit- Capital Radio in London was like a big poppy station and they played good enough as I walked in. 
and loads of the engineers at the back who were working the cars were good you know and they were singing along to it and i went oh that's quite cool i quite like that uh hide the car the next week i bought it back five days later and i bought it back and handed the keys in and good enough was playing again i went whoa and that's one of those moments where you go shit that song is really it wasn't radio one it wasn't radio it was capital which is pop and they were playing it all the time and you go okay this is this is massive this song people like it and it's working and it's it's out of our hands you know what i mean we did it but it's out of our hands now you know another uh huge anthem staying out for the summer what's the story behind that song nigel um as i said he worked in austin rover which was his um big massive car factory in birmingham and he worked on the um he worked. To, he he built. He worked himself up, and he was on the production line. You know, the cars come in, do this, and the cars go through. And he said, "You know, the production line of cars, and they work, and they gradually go through, and you have to do the thing to it, and it goes through." And um, and some of the old fellas on the production line would go, "Don't get out. Just get out. If you've got any kind of talent, get out. You don't want to be in this. Just get out." And it was. Nigel, looking at his life about working in a factory and going, these guys are telling me that I've got to get out. And they were, they were, they were really generous. These old guys were being generous to him, going, as in, get the fuck out of here, mate. If, you, if you're a singer, if you're a singer in a band, get out, man. Don't be in it because it'll grab you and it'll suck you in. And before you know it, you've been here 15 years and you're in the production line doing what you do. And I think it was Nigel saying, got to get out of here, you know. And um, uh, uh, and him kind of realising that it's not the, not the world for him. The world, what he wanted to do is being in a band, you know. So we're here tonight at Medina Theatre on the Isle of Wight where you're performing. What's still the thrill of performing for you? Um, meeting someone like this boy. Um, and um, the thrill is... It's guaranteed that every gig that you do, there is always someone that's never seen you before. Um, a lot of times it's people who've seen you before... But there's always someone that's never seen you before. And if I'm lucky, they'll come up and they'll talk to me after the gig and they'll go, never seen you before and you're amazing. Oh my God, I can't believe I've never seen you before. And it was, and you made that connection. And when when a gig goes well, you make a connection with the audience and it's funny. Man, it can be so funny. And there's a transference of humour and energy that you can't replicate anywhere anywhere you don't get that buzz where i can take the piss i can have a laugh i can say something i can do a song and people clap and they're like oh, i love that and that transference of energy is such a massive thing such a massive thing you know so 
you know, you don't get that by going to the shop and buying a pint of milk. You know what I mean? It's it's a great thing, you know. And what's next for Dodgy? Well, we're going to have a bit of time off. We're going to have a bit of time off. Uh, the three guys, Nigel and Miller, they're going to go to an acoustic tour um, throughout um, October, November. Uh, and I'm going to go and play with the Bank of the Icicle Works from uh, Liverpool. Um, play drums for them. And then we're just going to have some time off because we've been so busy. We've had, Because we, we split up or Nigel left and then we've actually been and then for 10 years we've actually been together longer this time than we were the first time and we don't want to be playing crap gigs anymore we don't we, we, we want to just take a bit of time off and raise our fee a little bit and if people want to book us they'll book us and then just take a bit of time away you know and it's because uh, I work with kids with um, emotional behavioural difficulties I work with people like yourself, and um, I'm loving that. I'm loving teaching, you know. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens next year. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks very much. That's fantastic. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy? Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.